I write these words in my private sanctum within the library of Ardua Hall, one of the few libraries remaining after the enthusiastic book burnings that have been going on across our land. What betrayals and then what denunciations might lie in store for me? There are several within Ardua Hall who would love to get their hands on these pages. Wait, I counsel them silently. It will get worse. Three, two, one. Welcome back to the Vintage Podcast. I am your host, Lena Norms, uh, and this is a very special episode because if you haven't been on the internet recently, you might not know. It's a very slim chance, but you might not know uh, that Margaret Atwood has a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale out. It's called The Testaments. It came out on the 10th of September, uh, and ever since then, I've been seeing people all over London um, reading the book, uh, and I've been waiting uh, to talk to people about it. I've gathered together some merry women um, to talk about the book with me uh, because I want to talk to people about it, and um, I know you all have read it. Um, I'd like to go around the group first, and um, if you could introduce yourselves to the listeners. Who have we got around the table? Should we start with you, Jess? Hello, I'm Jessica Graham, and I'm a bookseller. I have an independent bookshop in Primrose Hill in North London. Hi, I am Son of Lichentart. I am a social media producer and also have a YouTube channel called Books and Quills. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic, and yeah, I just read quite a lot of books. That's my qualification, <laughs> I guess. I just really like the book. <laughs> I like paper. Um, so I thought at first we could talk, before we get into the book, talking a little bit about um, our personal relationship to uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, I think, like, we're, like, at this point in its kind of prolific kind of nature, it's, it's been on curriculums for a long time. People have been talking about it for a long time. This, that we've been waiting 35 years for this sequel that we kind of didn't know was coming. Um, so can we go around and talk about the first time we read the book or heard about the book and, and how we felt about it? Yeah, I first read it when I was in my teens. It was on our uh, curriculum. And uh, the things I noticed then are not the same things I noticed when I reread it before the, te- the Testaments came out. Um, the thing I noticed this time reading it was about how interested Margaret Atwood is in, in language. And there is, you know, every time an interesting word is used, Offred kind of hangs on it, you know, sort of says household, head of the heart, you know, house. He holds the house, and it's and that I found really moving. Having spent quite a bit of time in doing journalism and actually going to places in the developing world where girls don't necessarily read, is that actually the violence of taking language away from someone. And you know, Offred is so desperate to read. She's so she loves playing Scrabble with the commander. You know, she's finding Nelite Bastardo's carborundum or whatever an illegitimate carborundum written in the the wardrobe is such a big moment to her. She's sort of hungry for words, um, and so I think it's it's a that is a mark to me of a truly great novel is that you can come back to it again and again and take different things out of it each time. I feel like I'm quite a newbie when it comes to this book because I initially hadn't heard of it before. I grew up in the Netherlands and it wasn't until a few years back that it kind of caught my eye. I'm a huge dystopian and apocalyptic book fan and that was one of the books that people would always say I can't believe you haven't read this you would absolutely love it so is it not that much of a big deal in the Netherlands it must be but I just hadn't I just hadn't come across it in the same way yes and so uh, I read it two years back and while I was reading it my thoughts the whole time was why haven't I read this before this is Mm. like the perfect book for me um and was really I guess a bit surprised by the way the story was told as in like I loved um, that is told out of order and you just get drip fed all these little bits of, of the history um, and before I read it as well I thought it was a lot more historical than it was going to be because I had seen one of the book covers before and that is all I knew 
Um, so that was a surprise as well. And I didn't know when it was written when I read it. And when I checked, I was absolutely shocked that it was written in the 80s because mm. I was so convinced it must have been written, I don't know, about 10 years ago or even yeah, just really a few years in. back. Yeah. Yes. And so it left yeah, a really big impression on me. How about you, Jess? I first read it in 1985, which was the year I graduated, in fact, and I was an English so student, year it so came it was out. a hot book. <laughs> of course, it was written in 1984, which yeah. carries all those connotations. And um, I think at the time, because I was young then, I was just struck by how privileged I'd been to have an education. Um, and then I reread it very recently um, for this, and like you, it was a, almost a completely different book for me, mm. you know, 34 years on or whatever it is. Um, but what struck me really profoundly was how the iconography of the book has permeated our popular culture you know the look the image of the women in their dress and how that's become a symbol mm. um, for women's feelings about injustice in that time um, but also sadly how little has changed so you know we still have enormous violence against women there are still many girls in the world who are never taught to read um, so how potent and current it still is and I think because of 1984 and all the other dystopian novels that have since been published it's important now to view it in the tradition of those novels that will have a long and lasting life. I think that's something that I hadn't fully clocked when I read it the first time was how resonant of 1984 it is. In mm. fact, in particularly structurally, right, with the idea of the appendix, mm. which kind of says this is after this civilization has fallen, which is exactly what happens with the dictionary on Newspeak at the end of 1984. And there from that you learn that actually some bit of Winston Smith has survived. And the same thing with this one, you learn that some bit of Offred has survived and actually you can kind of guess at the identity of the commander. And it's something that I think that would picks up really well I mean, the, the name of the new book being The Testaments, right, is exactly about the idea that you have to tell your story, that actually being able to record it, again, it comes back to this idea that mm. without writing, you don't have the ability to make a mark and make a mark in history, which for women, I think, is incredibly important. I also think it's kind of funny. I wonder if it's a little outward joke, because you, you know the idea where the word testify comes from, right? Was that you were supposed to, in a, in a court, put your hand on your testicles yeah. and swear. <laughs> so it, there's a, there's I, a, don't, I don't know that either. I was like, yeah, I know where it is. It's from the Bible and that, no. <laughs> so it's like, here's something that's really important to me that I'm swearing on. And I wonder if that's a that's a kind of hidden joke, because it, you know, it, it, it has a, again an incredible resonance about the fact that we men's testimony is believed more, right? So mm. in um, Iran, traditionally places like that, you know, you needed, well, I think there's a reference to it in this book of actually about you know you needing four men yeah. you know four and, and actually a woman's word is only worth a quarter of a man's mm. and and that's something that permeates all of this is about the idea of women writing women reading women being able to be remembered in history and it's something that's indefinitely in dialogue with 1984 but takes it in a particularly mm. female direction yeah another thing that really stuck out to me was how i'd i'd read the book when i was maybe like 16 17 reread it a couple of times but hadn't read it for a long time listened to the audiobook just before i read the testament and I realised that because of maybe the other books I'd been consuming in that time, I'd romanticised Offred. And I thought she was mm. braver than she was. I thought she was more feminist than she was. I thought she was more angry about the regime than she was. And that was like quite uncomfortable. But also I think like part of what makes Margaret Atwood amazing is that she has a lot of sympathy for these um, women. I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about the Testaments, these women who aren't really are like kick-ass feminist heroes they're like women that have been through trauma and aren't always that keen on the universal um experience but they're more concerned with their personal experience mm -hmm. which is is really understandable um but yeah that kind of scared me <laughs> a little bit what really struck me about the book is that balance in the character between just doing the day-to-day -day and just making sure that you're safe and being really scared that you're being overheard all the time 
and then also having days where you just go I can't believe this is happening like there must be something we, we, we can do this is ridiculous mm. and kind of her flip-flopping between that even from minute to minute yeah definitely. one of the, the um, developments um, that comes so clearly in the testaments I think is the fact that by this time we've moved on in time and the women have become um, slightly more able to use their voices to collude with one another mm-hmm. and you begin to get the sense of this resistance being something active rather than just the one voice, the one person. Um, and that gives it a bit more hope, yeah, I feel. Definitely. 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 But I think you're also completely right to pick up on its very uneasy relationship with feminism. And, and Margaret Atwood has always said, she's, you know, personally, it's mm. a label that she finds really difficult. I'm mm. revisiting the first novel now. You really see about how much there is an argument with second wave feminism in it. And actually, the voice of the commander saying, you know, it, it, were you happy before, you know, when you were having plastic surgery and wearing shoes that you couldn't walk in and slicing yourself up and, you know, porn was so freely available, which seems like kind of an odd thing to be, that you think, was everyone? In, in the 1980s worried about porn this is before even kind of internet mm. pornography was a was a thing but it's I think and that's what I find unique about it as a dystopia and it effectively says well hang on a minute you weren't in utopia before like what was the thing that you lost and actually for women progress is always an interesting kind of move forward and steps back and actually it, it you know women have moved from one dystopia to another essentially in, in the handmaid's tale I think that's a really difficult complicated argument to make that you know actually why do some people collude with Gilead, because actually feminists may have, in you know, unwittingly set up the idea of a liberal society as something that needed to be fought against, mm-hmm. and they might have been complicit, really, unwittingly, in in the formation of Gilead. Because they, there's, I forgot as well when rereading it how much I love Moira, <laughs> her best friend, <laughs> yes. yeah. uh, and also her mum, who all sound like the people that I'd want to to narrate the book. And it was almost like a resistance for me to be like, okay, you've you're, you've got Offred, you've got to deal with Offred. And yeah, I think it's interesting to see those characters as as quite like from a, from an outsider's perspective, that might be how people see me. <laughs> and I'm like, am I part of you know? Mm. Is is are things moving too fast, too quickly, and it's it's having the opposite effect. What really shocked me in The Handmaid's Tale was, I think it's Aunt Lydia saying, remembering, you know, all the things you read in the newspaper, all the terrible things that happen to women, and they kind of try and twist it in a way where it's like, well, it was incredibly terrible before, and obviously you're having a, this is a better deal for you right now. And as you're reading it, you can almost see how, if you say that enough to someone, they might start believing it. Yeah. Even though while you're reading it, you obviously can see that they're not oh, yeah. in an ideal been situation. Yeah, big argument. I always mm. take idea with this idea of chivalry not being harmless, but it actually is a way of controlling women because it's saying that essentially men are kind of base and violent and horrible, and actually we need to have all these structures to control women mm. in order to protect you. It's for your own good, mm. and I think that's something that she picks up mm-hmm. really brilliantly. Yeah, it's this tension almost between um, being civilized and covering yourself up, but actually admitting that we have base needs and and that men are just naturally like that. So that's how we're going to structure society around these natural animal needs mm. and you're like that's not civilized yeah, that's everything seems structured around that in the in this yeah. society yeah it's yeah. really scary um so to move on to the testaments um how did you guys feel when you heard that there was a sequel were you nervous were you excited were you a bit surprised because i just thought there never would be one i was horrified <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> well because i think what well, because of my experience about um to kill a mockingbird right which is a brilliant book and a beautiful book and one that again i read when i was a teenager and i find incredibly moving and then when I heard about Ghost Set a Watchman and the kind of revisionist nature of, of that and the way I actually thought, you know, I don't want to read this because I don't need, you know, I don't need to have my original reading experience kind of coloured by something that actually I don't think Harper Lee intended. 
And I think that there's always a you know a fear when an uh, an author goes back to a subject that actually you think let it let it be you know and the same with that I think Margaret always really interesting in interviews that she doesn't want to just kind of give exegesis of the book and and say X means this and this means mm-hmm. that because it's supposed to be a work of art it's not a political tract it's supposed to have nuance and ambiguity to it and so my real fear was that what I think was an entirely beautiful brilliant finished jewel would somehow be kind of ruined by something that was a pale shadow of itself, which I don't think has, has happened. But, yeah, that's why I was... I don't know if you... How, I felt that mm, too. Yeah. I, felt, I felt very sceptical and thought, oh, no, you know, is this because of the television series or, <laughs> you know, what has happened here? What do people want resolution, as they often do, when there's an unfinished story? And I was so relieved when I read it to find mm. that it's actually... It's a sort of organic sequel, in a mm. sense, without being too specific. Yeah, I think a um, misconception, I think, is that it's a continuation of Offred's story and, and Margaret Atwood yes. says that she's very much done mm. with that voice. And, yeah, I'm so glad it isn't that. Yes. And I think there's also this like addiction that we have with reality TV to know exactly what happens to somebody until they die. And actually there's the privacy of the characters that's like, she stepped into the van and we just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe I was just being greedy. I was just excited that there was going to be another one. Yeah. And one of my first thoughts, I was obviously curious about who it would be about and what the structure of it would be, but... Uh, as I also love talking about book-to-film adaptations and things along those lines, I was really curious about how it was going to match up, mm-hmm. if at all, with the TV show, as I'd been watching that as well. So that was the other thing that I was really curious about and how that process went. Yeah, because I feel like it's with The Handmaid's Tale, it's so much part of the canon. It'll be really interesting mm. in like 20 years to see mm. if this has also become part of the canon and then also how that interacts with all of the audience knowing about the TV show and, and how, mm. yeah. I wish I could be have been really behind the scenes and heard all the conversations about yeah. which decisions have been made and, and all the connections yeah. in that it's way. It's a very long time. To mm. wait for a sequel, mm. you know, a whole generation. Yeah, well, that's of the people. thing. I think we probably yeah. read it about the same age, but right. but it, I read it when it was on the curriculum. Mm. I think we're so lucky that Margaret Atwood lived to tell the tale. Mm. You know that she, that she's still able at seventy nine to write such an amazing, mm. pertinent. Yeah. Yes, I've just been writing about Jane Austen, who obviously died at the age of 41, having left only six full-length published novels. Mm. Um, and you're right, it's, it's, there's, everyone's now adapting the bits and pieces and scraps that she left behind because there's just yeah. not enough Jane <laughs> yeah. Austen. And we're so lucky with Margaret Atwood that there is a big, meaty canon there. Because you, you, open, you open the testaments and the first thing you see is just two full pages of <laughs> yeah. everything that she's written. Oh my God. I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't think it will be. It's not as, it's not as complete an experience as A Handmaid's Tale. It is very much a building on that. I think if you read it without reading The Handmaid's Tale, you'd be slightly baffled, really. Um, It doesn't have as... I mean, what it does, again, you talked about the iconography, which I think is exactly right. It builds really brilliantly on that. But one thing it does remind you is how much of that stuff there is that's just smuggled in. Um, You know, the idea of Jezebels, for example, or Particecution, you know, all of these things that are in the original book that are just big ideas that are really interesting. And that you can't really repeat that twice because that that world has kind of already been built. And some of the stuff like the Pearl Girls, I think these are, you know, these missionaries, I think is really brilliant. But the biggest set piece, I don't know about I me, mean, what you liked in this book, for me is Aunt Lydia in the stadium. You know, the early days of Gilead. I think that's the exceptional piece of 100%, this book. I agree. Yeah. Because you go, okay, we definitely know that fascist states happen. How do they happen? What actually? Who makes the decisions? What happens in the early? Where's the like tilting bit where you know it could go either way, and all the individual decisions that people have to make to make that happen? Do you stand up to it and get gunned down, or do you go along with it? And that for me is is the heart of the book. I think it's the biggest question that it asks. And it's what really hit me in the Handmaid's Tale: the firing mm. um, that happened in issue when suddenly you know so the credit cards are blocked. In a publishing house. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. yeah. And suddenly there's, you know, men with guns and you got to leave. And I I think 
I, I was always wondering what was it like for the other people and the other characters that we met. Um, and that, yeah, I, as soon as I realised that was the bit that I was reading, I was like, oh, yes, I'm excited yeah. that we... I mean, it's obviously a horrible thing to read about, um, but I was very excited that that was something she included. No, it really fascinated me because last year I went to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in, uh, in Jerusalem, and they have a concert which I had never heard of about capos. So those were prisoners in Auschwitz who were put in charge of other prisoners, and they were more likely to be taken, rather than being Jewish concentration camp prisoners, being you know, people who are in for criminal guards. But some of them weren't. And actually, in those situations, when everyone is desperately fighting for slave or you know um, slave plantations in the American South, actually, how many of us wouldn't take the little tiny bump in status, even mm. if it meant putting ourselves mm. above mm. other people? And it's a horrible moral question to face. And yeah. similarly, it reminded me of a lot of books I read as a kid about uh, the Dutch, uh, the occupation of the Netherlands during the Second mm. World War. And so again, sort of all the, you know, who can you trust? Who's looking for a leg up? That kind of thing. It really, really reminded me of that, especially in this book as well. Yeah. And, and Margaret Atwood's covered this territory of relationships between women so well in other things, hasn't she? When you think about I mean, how dreadful in the cat's eye women who are supposedly friends mm. are to one another. So that sense of not knowing who one could trust, even within just the community of women, I think is brilliantly yeah. realised. And the character of Aunt Lydia, the fleshing out of that, mm. was one of the best things, I think. Because she was such a testament. super villain when you... <laughs> when she's you so much more nuanced. Mm. Yeah, she's um, moved really from being... I always thought of her as Miss Trunchbull in the first one. Yeah, right? and the, and the TV. <laughs> And I was almost <laughs> hesitant to get to know another side of her because you go, no, she's a horrible person, yeah. I don't want to hear the but human side of that what I forgot about the Hammers Tale is that you actually only hear about Aunt Lydia through the eyes of Offred it's mm. only in reported like echoes of, the, of what yeah. Offred remembers her telling her that we actually see and I'm like oh hard done by I don't think Aunt Lydia's a nice character <laughs> but I think um yeah so should we talk a little bit about the three perspectives so the first one that we've just been talking about is, is Aunt Lydia um we join her towards um uh, when she's kind of much higher up the ranks so the book opens and it's it's the extract that you've heard at the beginning of this podcast the book opens uh, with her opening her own kind of memoir that she's writing secretly in a library uh, in the kind of aunt's training center um and she's just had a statue erected to her <laughs> and she doesn't feel sad about that but she also feels a bit uncomfortable about it and she likes the offerings that people leave at the statue so then we also follow um, Agnes uh, who is born into a commander's family and um, the commander does remind us of the commander from the first one but it isn't we find out although at some point I was like is this commander Judd um, and she uh, discovers that she is actually the daughter of a handmaid and that really colours her quite um uh, it was more in like kind of personal experience of, of Gilead and uh, opens it up for her as something that might be problematic in a bigger sense and not just the kind of abuse that she experiences at home. She pleads asylum to the aunts and is spared from marriage uh, and, and is, is trained up as an aunt by Aunt Lydia. Um, so that dynamic's really interesting. And then the third perspective is a girl called Daisy who lives in Canada, which looks a lot like the world that we live in. Uh, and everything seems okay over there, quite recognisable. There's a really uncomfortable border between what used to be the US and is now Gilead and Canada uh, but for her Gilead is this place that's very very far away where horrible things happen and everybody objects to it and there's protests but she also is visited uh, in the shop that her mum works in by these girls called the Pearl Girls uh, who are there to be uh, to convert people to Gilead and bring people back because one of the big problems with Gilead is they're actually running out of people. I'm guessing because they killed a lot of them. Mm. <laughs> um, but but also they just need more more converts, especially women. 
Um, I was surprised by how, not quite easy it seemed, but how many people seemed to escape from Gilead. Because when you think about it, I mean, it's a big border mm-hmm. to try and keep people in. Yeah. Um, and so when they're talking about oh, more and more handmaids are kind of slipping through the cracks, mm-hmm. I was I was a bit mm-hmm. surprised by that because I thought it would be a handful because it seemed, when you're reading from Offred's point of view, it seems impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess the point is there are relatively few handmaids. And actually for most people in that society, is it worse than what they had before? You know, mm-hmm. the, for an econo wife, is it actually, you know, this is the kind of thing you don't ever yeah. get there. I'm so curious yeah. about the econo wives as well. Yeah, I wonder what kind of... It is, yeah, it is, yeah. But they don't. You never get to meet, and you never hear yeah. ever from an economy wife. It and I, I wonder how normal life is for them, and kind of at what level it, mm. it is. But you're right. I think the, the thing about the Canadian border is really fascinating, and particularly again, it's one of those things that actually seems really interesting to talk about now. When Trump's talking about building a wall with, you know, across the border with Mexico, so it's like, well, actually, you know, borders are really incredibly porous. But the other side of it is that. Um, the putative aunt girl in uh, in Gilead, it, we hear quite a lot of her at her rarefied girls' boarding school, which is a great reminder always that all girls' schools I went to on myself are, can, are, you know, <laughs> can be an absolute <laughs> snake pit. <laughs> and it's a really important point because what Atwood does so brilliantly is she talks about you know the way the power relations function. And obviously gender is one of those, and women are treated as a resource. You know, that's what we mm. talk about when we talk about patriarchy. But you can take away all the men and people still have mm-hmm. a pecking order yeah. how, very, how, very many Mar- how many Marthas do you have at home, right. etc.? Yeah. yeah. And the, the biblical allusions were still there and they, she introduces a new one because it's the Martha and Mary comparison and then they talk about um, uh, Rachel giving away her villa, her handmaid, to um, Jacob to impregnate her, or, well, let's just call it rape, mm. <laughs> which is what it is. Um, but then they also talk about this um, this story uh, that they ha- hold over the trainee, the trainee commander's wives or, you know, young girls, um, about um, this story in Judges about um, a concubine who escapes and um, is, is raped to death and then cut into 12 pieces and, and starts this ball rolling of a horrible war between lots of different nations am I getting this story you are, right? Yeah, kind of I'm like the Bible was a long time ago for me well it's just one of those things that reminds you actually when you read the Old Testament that it's a it's a really brutal place yeah. I was having this argument with someone on Twitter about feminist reinterpretations of the Bible and I was like well you do understand in the story of you know Lot and Sodom you know, he, his guests are, are male angels, and he says, "No, to be terrible, please don't take them. Take my virgin daughters instead." Yeah. That's a religious text, and again, mm. it's one of the things that Atwood goes back to the Old Testament mm. before the New Testament happens. Mm. And the New Testament is a lot more, apart from Revelations, is a lot more touchy feely, and you know, mm. love your brother as yourself. The Old Testament is comes from a society where resources were incredibly scarce and is vicious. Uh, for that very reason and I think one of the things that she does really well is say actually you know things are going to get pretty vicious in this world if birth rates continue to fall and we see that in our world you know we see that there's been a couple of these white nationalist killers who have gestured to a theory called the great replacement which is the idea that Muslim majority countries are having much higher birth rates white majority countries are by and large have much lower birth rates and therefore they kind of the argument runs you know we are being replaced as white people and that is why we have to go out and perpetrate terror attacks in order to raise this you know awareness of this so that is something that again Margaret was incredibly prescient about I think it's really interesting that there is very little mention of race in the handmaid's tale and yes. actually you then know in the tale Testaments kind of get subtly. It's been reworked now to say no. Actually, Gilead is an explicitly white nationalist state because you you imagine that's what would have mm. happened, but it wasn't an issue in quite the same way when she was writing mm. in the 80s, as obviously now natalism is inflected with race now. Because mm. they in the first one, like the the I read it as the Marthas were kind of coded in the way they spoke. 
as being a different race and that was a kind of like implied thing that some people were like oh well people in the 80s would have known that she meant that they were black and I was like I didn't know that that isn't why but that's what the yeah that's some other commentary but yeah I think it's really interesting and also just like her responding I don't know but I feel like her zooming out of the story and giving three perspectives on Gilead is is kind of almost um, symptomatic of, of what we're really scared of because I know that dystopia is supposed to reflect what the society you're writing for is, is really scared of and, and I think the separation between um, Canada and looking in at Gilead and not being able to get there or not being able to get out of Gilead but knowing that there's somewhere safer somewhere else in that border mm. anxiety was really real for me I That's think. very clearly indicated by the language used mm. by those two narrators as well isn't it because they almost don't understand one another the innocent girl who's brought up within the walls and this quite sassy although I agree not entirely convincing Canadian teenager who's mm. very self-obsessed and when they actually meet they, they don't really have a language to discuss their experiences or their past or their relationships mm. and um, and one of the words they come up with, I hope this isn't a spoiler either, but they, they use sisterhood and sister mm. amongst themselves within Gilead, which I think was very interesting. And I think there are these words, sisterhood, sacrifice, all of these things that resonate through the book, such that the language then, when you're reading the Testaments, you know, begins to acquire a power of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that Lydia speaks when you realise what her previous life was... Um, her judicial use of language is very significant, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah, you definitely get that because when she's um, when Agnes is reading the Bible and she because it's when you join the aunts, as you say, it's like a convent, and she suddenly begins to say, "Well, actually, hang on, these stories that I've been told aren't the way I've told them," and it does show you that kind of folk memory is one thing, but actually writing things down allows you to prove people are liars much more effectively than an mm. oral culture. And mm. I think you're right; it is really fascinating that actually Agnes just there are such things that she hasn't hasn't heard about, which again is, has enormous resonance now. You know, if you look at China, on the Chinese mainland, if you search even on a big search engine for Tiananmen, you will find stuff as if it's a tourist attraction. You will find nothing about the massacre in 1989 there. It, you know, even now, in today's incredibly connected society, it is still possible for an authoritarian state to essentially blank out something and simply say that it did not happen. Mm. And for a large number of citizens, therefore it did not happen. Mm. For me... Out of the two younger characters, the one that really spoke to me and that I, f- I was most intrigued to read about was definitely Agnes living in Gilead because she's one of the characters that you don't really get to know any of them in The Handmaid's Tale. That I mean, I guess they weren't there at that age, being born within Gilead, growing up, being a young teenager and being in a place where she has quite a high rank. So her life should be the best it can be in within Gilead but you know you discover very quickly that is 100% not the way it is and I find that balance really interesting as well because obviously life as a hand as a handmaid is not going to be a good one but you would expect that at least if you you have a higher rank you would be in the ideal position in within Gilead um, and that isn't the case so I, I, yeah I find it interesting to see her discovering you know some of the subtleties and the things about her life that weren't quite what they thought mm. what she thought they were mm. um so yeah that that spoke to me i think a lot mm. more than kind of the outside perspective out, outside perspective of being um in canada kind of looking in mm. yeah also her relationship with becca is very powerful mm. isn't it you get these two girls who have grown up together in gilead and go to school together but life isn't rosy for them at all mm. you know, life is horrifying for them and their relationship with their own families and and, and father figures and male figures mm. um, before they actually 
become um, mm. go, go into Gilead, um, go to the the aunts. Um, it is it's horrifyingly prescient and real and vivid. Yeah. And it's just history just, repeating yeah, itself over and over like again. Just like the outside world. It's nothing special. They're grateful to get out of that, indeed, yeah. aren't they? It remi- the opening scene of The Handmaid's Tale is, is, is um, her sleeping in a gymnasium and they talk about the smell of sex and, and the smell of adolescence. And, and like for, for me, that was like signalling that that would be lost. And, and it's true, in Agnes's life, mm. adolescence wasn't really a thing. No. Like mm. she, no. They get no. married yeah. off at like 14 and that's, mm. that's it. And adolescence is also like a an invention of the modern age is <laughs> something that yeah, yeah. Is, that actually just doesn't exist and to you know she gets to pick from three husbands and that is the choice she has and the oldest and one is apparently it. the best choice <laughs> was like, with his jowls <laughs> my main question while reading this book as it was while reading the handmaid's tale was did anyone ever believe in it within the story like was there a group of 20 men that thought it was going to be a success and that's it was everyone else forced into it and was it ever was it ever possible to be a success? Because I feel like even um, the setup of the handmaids and everything, it all seems like it's not functional for many reasons mm. uh, and not logical and all just kind of set in place to control as many women as possible mm. um, with the excuse of, oh, but, you know, we need the system to make sure that, you know, humanity survives. Um, yeah, and, and it's not a surprise that Gilead falls. I feel mm. like while you're reading it, you can just see it cracking apart there's a desperate haphazardness to it mm-hmm. isn't there at any stage and I think it also kind of starts to crack because you realise that a lot of the men also exist within a huge structure and, and that they're not happy mm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and, and part of it is that like, the, the Atwood's saying like, like you know no, like only the people at the very top of the pyramid whatever their gender are, win <laughs> although they don't seem mm. happy either and a lot of the say like Nick and all these people that exist within it are still oppressed I think that's true I think it's also useful to remember the time when it was written in the early 80s so 1979 is the fall of the Shah in Iran and actually that's when you get Iran moves from being a much more more westernised society into having Sharia law, right? And um, Marjane Satrapi and Persepolis, her brilliant graphic novel, talks about being nine and being forced to put on a hijab for the first time and how, you know, what a terrible experience she found that to be because suddenly you were this weird little object that had to be protected and your virginity was this kind of resource and, you know, and that meant all these restrictions on, you know, the you that had to be preserved. And actually, weirdly reading it, it reminded me of, I don't know if you know the Terry Pratchett novel, Small Gods, brilliant novel but it's about um uh it's set in the discworld and it's it's about essentially a theocracy in which it turns out that only one person one novice apprentice monk or brutha actually believes in the god and actually this ended up this whole system has built been built up and it's got an inquisition and you know all this incredibly enormous architecture of religion and literally no one actually believes Mm. in god in it and i sort of think that's how i feel when i read this i think this is just a, a what is shown that actually people, the way that people use religion for power, I can't mm. see any, I can't think of any off the top of my head, any portraits of true believers at all um, in, in, in Gilead. You would presume that there would be some, you know, and there, and Serena Joy is somebody who was prior to Gilead, um, you know, a, 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 a sort of TV evangelist mm-hmm. essentially, right? So yeah. she clearly is uh, a relatively strong Christian, but you just sense that this is a, an entire creation and just like gender, religion is another weapon for people to turn into a form of power relation. Yeah, just as you were saying that, I realise it kind of reminds me of, you know, there's like an Ionesco play and it's called The Leader and they're all, it's kind of like waiting for Godot, like they're all waiting for the leader, so where's the leader, where's the leader? At the end of the play, the leader comes and he has no head <laughs> and they all don't know what to say because there's just his headless man on the stage. There's that thing of just like, every, like the fever of... of something cult, isn't there. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's like yeah. a contagious... 
thing. Which I suppose makes sense with why people are starting to bring tributes to Aunt Lydia, because actually, Mm. again, Mm. it's about you know that you have to show a certain level of fervour in order that you don't get kind of denounced. And then actually what happens is that some people do become associated in people's minds with fertility. So Aunt Lydia obviously has got a lot of power. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you end up praying to Aunt Lydia? It's an entirely rational human thing to to do in an irrational situation. But then it's also that she's criticised for for too many people laying stuff at her statue and that (laughs) that she's actually getting too pious. Oh, no, I I mean, I love all that that stuff. And what's the other one called who's a real nightmare, who's obviously a terrible sadist, the other aunt? Oh, I can't remember. Begins name begins with V. I love it because I completely Fillet, forgotten that. Um, and of course, I don't know if this is ex- ever. Yeah, it's explicitly said in the Hamway Tale that all the aunts are given names of sort of brand names of things. So there's Aunt Sarah <laughs> yes. Lee, like the cakes, and you, I used to expect kind of Aunt like Do- Aunt Dove is one of them. I sort of was expecting kind of Aunt Veet and Aunt oh, like Oil of Olay. <laughs> yeah. to turn because up. what's Lydia? Is that like a? I think it's a cake mix. Is it cake? cake I think mix? it might it's be really... like Sarah Lee. Actually, I don't know. It's really eerie. But it would be. It yeah. would be like. But it's yeah. also a kingdom in the Bible, isn't it? The women of Lydia were deemed to be incredibly beautiful. <laughs> I'd love. I'd love to. It's you know, so write amazing. the essay on all the. Yeah, all the, so names, all the names, all the names in. She's got a real knack because even the things like the sort of the porno mart and the stuff like that from the original one. And it took me a while to work out exactly how you're supposed to pronounce participation and be like, obviously, it's a participation execution. Mm. That's yeah. how you. Um, but there is it, but it's rev- reminiscent of, of, of words about birth as well. And I think mm-hmm. she's a writer. This feels to me like, I think obviously it's an, a, a late stage novel. I mean, unless she lives to 150, which mm. you know she's looking <laughs> pretty great on it, so it might well happen. But it does feel like a writer's book about what it means to be a writer a mm. lot. And actually, I think that's something that you maybe get to more at the end of a long career is mm. a kind of meditation on why people want to put things down. Mm. Why does Aunt Lydia mm. go to all these risks of writing her story when that's the one thing? that puts her in more danger than anything else. Mm. Well, actually, as humans, that's kind of a really fundamental need that we have. It's important to have that need for hope, isn't it? For for resolution, for something to happen. And I think one of the things that struck me is how, um, in difficult times, people look for moral certainty. You know, they look, and that's why perhaps Mm. they get drawn into Mm. religious cults. Just something to hold on to, you don't have to make decisions. That's right, something that has seemingly working rules. And I think um, uh, Margaret Atwood just did a talk at um, the National Theatre that was broadcast in cinemas, and and in that she was talking about how when she was writing Aunt Lydia, she thought a lot about Thomas Cromwell because she's really obsessed with him apparently. And Who how, isn't? <laughs> like, naturally, yeah. um, and, and how he his like personal life and his personal confessions in his diary were very contradictory to what he actually had to execute. But he felt just that he was part of a system, and if he didn't do it, somebody else would. And and that's like those, those kind of like famous evil people in history. That but it's the overriding question of politics. And look, you just had mm. you know, Amber Rudd walk out of the cabinet saying, actually, I couldn't stand by, and I think that you know becoming a nationalist government and I couldn't stand by for no deal Brexit having previously be taken that role and everybody constantly in politics you're, you don't know unless you're a supreme dictator gets everything they want so the question is always how much am I willing to give in order that we can have enough of us here to get something done together what will I give up and that's the central question of Hilary Mantel's Cromwell novels right is that actually you know how much do you get done how much do you take the edge off a, a tyrant but at what cost and who is who is a pawn that you can sacrifice the same thing with Aunt Lydia. It's, I think those characters are really fascinating because they are living moment to moment, making life or death decisions. Mm. And, and it's also for like people who judged Aunt Lydia in the first book. It's interesting. It kind of it's what you said, like harks back to like how how modern feminists look back at second wave feminists. And I'm like, what were you doing? Why would you do this? Why would you Why would you leave out so much? And it's like, well, survival is part of it. And also. 
I think Aunt Lydia felt a lot like she was like, I'd rather be part of the structure, and she it was her idea to to make the the um, the the aunt's uh, infrastructure and like solidify it with with Commander Rudd and like kind of be friends with him so that she could protect the girls. Mm. Mm. And in doing yeah, so, she does manage to preserve, you know, quite a lot of novels, you know, a lot of yeah, stuff that would well. have, have been lost. Yeah. And, yeah, but it is, but also then the other side of that is that a comforting fiction that you tell yourself as you, you know, as you take mm. the coin of, of, of a dictator. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. She does have a sense of humour. It's ridiculous. And also, yeah. she does believe in the power of the word, you know, the library, the fact mm. that they then learn to read, which is an extraordinary yeah. thing to think of people not learning to read until their 20s. Yeah, mm. and what, you know, it must be incredibly person. hard. I say this yeah. as someone who's struggling through Duolingo German lessons every morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, why didn't I do right, this when right. I was seven? <laughs> but you imagine trying to yeah. read yeah. as an adult. Yeah. The, the books make really yeah. make you realise the power yeah. of being able yeah. to read and write and watch the news and you know mm. communicate with mm. each other in other ways mm. than just speaking. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, before we give away all the secrets to the people who haven't read it, um, I think we should probably wrap up there. But thank you all for chatting about the Testaments with me. Um, I'm really excited for everybody listening to read it. Um, you can tweet us at Vintage Books or talk to us on Instagram. We really want to hear what you think. Um, yeah, and until next time. Bye.